you to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Verse 32 is where we'll be reading today. I'm reminded that uh, it was a year ago that I was installed as your pastor uh, on this weekend, June 3rd of last year, and uh, just am so thankful to be here and can't imagine, it doesn't seem like it's been a year, it's gone by so quickly, and uh, I just attribute that to time flies when you're having fun. Uh, so I'm really enjoying being here in Biloxi and being your pastor, and, uh, and I've grown to love you deeply, so and what a privilege it is, and I just want to note that. A privilege to be up here uh, before you and preach to you, and I, I thank you for allowing me to do so. We're going to look at Mark 14, 32 to 42. This most profound episode in the life of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Hear now God's word. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Well, all throughout history you see uh, countless people facing certain death for their faith with courage. Uh, there are countless examples of men and women uh, who were martyrs for the Christian faith. Uh, we lived over in England for about seven years, as you know, and the town next to the town where we live is Gloucester, and there in the courtyard of Gloucester Cathedral is a marker that marks the place where John Hooper, who was the Bishop of Gloucester back in the 1500s, uh, he, was founding, he was found guilty of believing the very things that we celebrate today, that we believe and preach here today. And he was burnt at the stake on the 9th of February, 1555, and he met his fate with steadfast courage and unshaken conviction. Up in Scotland, uh, David Haxton was one of my favorite martyrs for the faith. Uh, he was... He was, uh, it was a pronounced that the way that he would die was that his body would be drawn backward on a hurdle uh, to a cross and that there would be a high scaffold erected a little above the cross where, first of all, his right hand would be cut off, then his left hand would be cut off after a little while longer. Then he, would be, then he was to be hung for a little while but cut down before he died. And then they were to extract his bowels and then uh, take his heart out, and then shown to the people by the hangman. So, wow, thankfully we don't handle things in the church like that anymore. Uh, but, it, but it's been uh, recorded 
that after David Haxton's first hand was cut off, the executioner had such trouble getting the hand off, he suggested to the executioner that he cut, it off, cut the other hand off of the joint to make it easier on him. So again, someone who faced death for his faith with great courage. I mean, more courage than you could even imagine. Horrible circumstances. Sorry to be so gruesome there. But I want to illustrate a point. Because you see these men, and countless others, facing death with courage. But here we see Jesus, sorrowful and troubled. The words there mean greatly distressed. Jesus was greatly distressed. He was alarmed. And it says that he was troubled. It literally means to be very heavy. Uh, the, the, he was very troubled. He was in anguish and distress. When you see Jesus throughout his life, he was always unflappable, calm, in the face of the fiercest opposition. And we've just recently seen that in Mark as he uh, faced the uh, questions from the, from the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and others who were trying to trip him up. So why is Jesus here so distressed and astonished and horrified? Jesus knew all along that he was going to die. He's predicted his death at least three times. It's recorded for us in the book of Mark. Um, he came to earth in the first place to lay down his life. He knew the mission that he came to accomplish. And he knew that it was now the time to do what he had come to do. Now, if you look at back to what we talked about last week, we saw that the Lord's Supper was instituted uh, right before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And in John's account of the Lord's Supper, Jesus says that he knew, or John tells us that Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and he was going back to God. So Jesus knew his ultimate destination was to be back at the right hand of the Father. Uh, he knew that all things had been given into his hands. He knew his own power and strength. He knew all these things that very night as he washed the disciples' feet. But here he is in such a state in the Garden of Gethsemane why is he not like Hooper or Haxton or countless others who exhibited so much confidence as they faced death? Now, if it were any, anyone else, we might think, well, they lack courage. But Jesus is the perfect Son of God. He was not weak or cowardly in any way. Now, Jesus, apparently and certainly, was facing something more daunting than any martyr throughout history ever faced. Jesus was just beginning to taste what was coming. Something that made being burnt alive or drawn and quartered seem like a flea bite in comparison. And he tells us what it is that's causing him so much distress. And he uses the term, the cup. The cup. Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. It was this cup that was causing him so much distress and agony. What is the cup? Well, throughout the Bible, the cup is used as a metaphor 
pour the wrath of God on human sin and evil. And that's exactly what Jesus is referring to here now. We can look back through uh, several Old Testament scriptures. Psalm 78 tells, or Psalm 75, verse 8 tells us, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. So God's wrath being poured out on the wicked. Isaiah 51 Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Ezekiel 23 calls this cup of God's wrath a cup of horror and desolation. See, Jesus knows exactly what he has come to do and what he is about to face, and he's beginning to taste that. Now, dying by crucifixion uh, was physically tormenting. But what Jesus faced on the cross was much greater than, than simply the physical pain and suffering that he went through. Now the suffering was in his soul. He suffered for sin in his soul. He endured God's wrath for sin in his soul. He was abandoned by the Father. The same Father who always said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We heard those words from the Father at uh, Jesus' baptism and on the Mount of Transfiguration. But now Jesus only cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now none of us have been, uh, I mean, some of us have been abandoned by uh, people, by friends maybe. And the closer the relationship, the more it hurts. You know, if you meet someone one day and they come up to you and say, I don't ever want to have anything to do with you again, and they walk off. Well, hey, that's no big deal. We hardly knew them anyway. But if it's a, a friend, that's painful. If it's a spouse or a child, one of our own children who says that to us, how deep that pain and distress, it would, how much distress it would cause us. But here we have... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, the eternal triune God who have always known perfect fellowship for eternity. The, fa the Father is abandoning the Son on the cross. How much that hurt. And the darkness was so great that actually all of creation became dark for three hours during the crucifixion. The Son refused to shine as the Son of God hung on the cross. And what he endured there was hell. You know, a lot of people say hell is the absence of God, but hell is not the absence of God. Hell is the absence of God's grace, and it's the presence of God's wrath being poured out on sin. And that's what Christ endured on the cross. When we say in the creed that we just said, he descended into hell, uh, it means, on one hand, yes, Jesus literally died, physically died, but he didn't go to the place we call hell. He endured hell on the cross. He became sin, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us. He, for our sake, God the Father made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was, as Isaiah 53 tells us, stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. So in other words, 
What Christ endured on the cross was punishment, the punishment of hell, of being abandoned by God, of of tasting nothing but his wrath, being poured out on sin and wickedness and evil. And that's why when Jesus endured that wrath on the cross, he was able to say at the end, it is finished, which is an accounting term, which means paid in full. He has borne the cost. He He has paid the price. He is... He has completed the punishment for our sin on the cross. It's finished. It's completed. He completely endured hell for us in our place on the cross. And so what he's doing in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, he knows what he's about to face, and it's daunting because it's worse than any physical human suffering that you could imagine. It's suffering in the soul. And he's asking the Father if there's any other way If there's any other way that this can be accomplished, please let it happen, because he knew what he was about to face. So he recommits himself to it in the Garden of Eden, in the Garden of Gethsemane, because he says, Father, not my will, but your will be done. What a wonderful thing it is that Jesus said, Lord, whatever you ask, I'm going to do it for these people. Wow, that's fantastic that he would do it. And that's why in the cross he was able to say, after he had said, it is finished, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He had done what the Father had asked him to do. He had paid the penalty for sin. And he was able to uh, entrust himself to the Father's hands. And then he yielded up his spirit. They didn't take his life from him. He laid it down. He gave it up for us. This is the cup that Jesus was tormented over in the Garden of Gethsemane, that he drank to the dregs on the cross, that he endured willingly so people like you and me would never have to know abandonment from God or the wrath of God, only his love and kindness, only welcome into his family, adoption into his family. It's important that we get this. It's important that we understand what Jesus has done in the depths of it though I don't know that we possibly can understand the depths of what Jesus went through. The disciples certainly did not get it at this point. Jesus tells them that he's sorrowful and troubled unto death, and he asks them to pray with him. It's the least they can do at a time like this. He's just washed their feet. He's just shown such great service and love to them there in the upper room at the Last Supper. But they cannot even stay awake. See, They don't understand the seriousness of what Jesus has come to do. They don't understand what Jesus uh, is is staring at. He's staring into this abyss, and they don't don't get it. They've been told it was not a lack of information. Jesus has predicted this on several occasions, but it was a lack of understanding of the seriousness of the situation. Now, the cup here demonstrates three things for us, three things that I want to highlight. So all that was introduction to these three points. Uh, And don't panic. The the points are short. Uh, But we we don't want to be like the disciples who didn't get it. They didn't understand the seriousness of what Christ uh, was doing, was facing there, and what he accomplished on the cross. They understood it later, after it was all over, So we can't blame them too much. We wouldn't have been any better off in the understanding department. But we have the benefit of hindsight. We can look back and we understand what they have written about it and what God has 
told us about what Jesus did. There's three things that this cup, uh, this episode in Gethsemane, tells us. First of all, the cup demonstrates for us the seriousness of sin. The seriousness of sin. I must be terribly sinful if my punishment for sin caused the sinless Son of God to sweat and be sorrowful and troubled in his soul. Jesus was willing to drink the cup that I should drink. That cup is full of all the devastating wrath of the Father for my sin. And it was such a troublesome thing that the Son of God had a sense of dread, even sweating great drops of blood at the thought of it. Jesus did that because of sin, our sin, the sins that we so easily commit, the sins that we so flippantly think are are no big deal. I've heard it said that if if there was just one sin in the world, Jesus, the the same penalty would have had had to been uh, laid upon Jesus to save us. Because any sin against God, any disobedience to him, uh, is a sin against an infinite God, an infinitely loving God, an infinitely gracious God. And when we rebel against him, it's going gonna, it's gonna to require an infinite punishment. And that's what hell is. So the cup, first of all, demonstrates the seriousness of sin. If sin was not a serious thing, the Son of God would not have been, uh, would not have been called upon to die in our place. So sin is very serious. Second of all, the cup not only demonstrates the seriousness of sin, but it also demonstrates the love of God. Now many people are uncomfortable with a God of wrath that I'm talking about here. They say, I don't want a God of wrath, I want a God of love. But that's a short-sighted position to take. Because if you don't have a God of wrath, then you don't have a God of love. Because God's wrath is a function of his love. And the same is true of us. Let me illustrate it this way. You know, if you love someone, you will get angry when someone else attempts to harm them or actually does harm them. You know, you've all seen the mama bear. And when, the, when the, somebody gets too near the, the cubs... The mama bear goes, you know, she, you, you, you better be careful. And I'm not, I may be talking about bears out in the woods, but there's some mama bears around here, I'm sure. You start messing with somebody's children and, and you're going to feel the wrath. My mom was that way. She was not a big lady, but you didn't want to mess with her children. She would get after you. And I'm sure you all understand what I'm talking about. The more you love the person, the greater your capacity to get angry when they are threatened in some way. It's true even if you see a loved one harming themselves with self-destructive behavior. It doesn't make you angry that they're, they're destroying their lives. And you, and you want that evil to go away. So God's wrath is a function of his love. He, he loves his creation. He especially loves his people. And sin and evil is our greatest problem. And that's why, for our sake, He made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He loved us so much that he poured out his wrath on sin. And Jesus Christ became sin embodied on the cross 
and the Father poured his wrath out upon that. It's because he loves us so much. So this cup demonstrates for us the love of God, the seriousness of sin as well, and thirdly, also, the cup shows us the value of his people. Now, generally speaking, we spend more money on those we love, and it's usually in proportion to how much we love them. It's not a hard and fast rule, so, you know, I don't want any marriages to break up because your husband's cheap, okay? But generally speaking, picture it this way. You have a, a, a single woman, uh, and, and she's got two suitors, two equally wealthy men, and they both take her out on separate dates. The first one comes to her door bearing roses. Uh, he, he comes to the door, he presents her with the roses, he tells her how beautiful she looks, then he takes her out in his car, you know, opening the door for her always, and uh, buys her, uh, the, the, in, uh, the, sorry, treats her to the best meal she's ever had at the finest restaurant. And then brings her home, walks her to the door, and tells her what a lovely evening and how beautiful she is and all, all those things. Well, the second fellow, and, and mind you, they're equally wealthy. The second fellow drives up to her house, honks the horn until she comes out, and gets in the car. He doesn't open the door for her. He does unlock it so she can get in. Uh, he then takes her through the McDonald's drive through and tells her that she can order anything she wants off the value menu. <laughs> then he takes her home again and drops her at the curb. Now obviously one of these women cares for, one of these men cares for the woman more, and the choice is obvious. Now picture on one hand a God who paid nothing in order to love you. And then on the other hand, the God of the Bible, who stepped down from heaven, took on human flesh and suffered by drinking the cup of wrath deserved by you and I and died in your place. Which God loves you more? The one, obviously, who paid the greatest price for you. Jesus Christ drank that cup of wrath for us because he valued us so much. The writer of Hebrews says that he, he suffered, uh, he went to the cross for the joy set before him. Now, if you're facing a cross, joy is probably not the emotion that you're going to feel. But the writer of Hebrews tells us that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross and despised the shame. And what was that joy? The joy of saving his people. He valued them so much. How deep the Father's love for us that he would do us. How much he values us that he would do this. So those three things. The cup shows us the seriousness of sin, how much the Father loves us, and as well, how much he values us. And when I don't understand the full impact of that, of what he did in drinking the, the cup, I get drowsy like the disciples did. I fall asleep. Not literally, usually, but... I get, I get uh, apathetic towards what Christ has done for me. And when that happens, I don't watch and pray. I don't resist temptation. 
I fall into all kinds of problems because we're just like the disciples. Quick to sleep, not watchful, uncaring, unable, even when Jesus gives us the greatest reasons to be dedicated. But our spirit is rarely willing and our flesh is always weak. We need his help. We need his help. We need to rest in him and ask him to give us even the will to follow him and to love him. And one way he does that is through giving us the gospel again and again, reminding us, reminding us again and again what he's done. He's given us this sacrament as a picture, a physical picture of what we're talking about here, of his broken body and poured out blood, so that we could get it and stay awake and be strengthened and reminded of what he's done for us and what he's gone for us. And back to our call to worship this morning. Psalm 116, it says, about another cup in Scripture. And there's, just, there's more cups in Scripture than just the cup of wrath. There's this wonderful cup that is offered to us today. What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. There are two cups, and one is full of poison, the poison of God's wrath. One is full of salvation and love and grace. And Jesus Christ says, here, you stay away from that cup and I'll drink that one and you have the cup of salvation. Will you take up the cup of salvation today? And we're going to take up the cup of salvation in the Lord's Supper. Now, it doesn't save us. It's for those who are already saved. But we're remembering. We're remembering what Christ has done for us when he laid down his life in our place and took that cup for us. May the Lord help us to be unlike the disciples and to be stirred up in our hearts for what he's done for us. Let's pray together.